this morning we're going to be making our way back into Genesis. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to go ahead and make your way there. Genesis chapter 3. The truth is, all of humanity and world religions have some type of answer, or some type of solution. But the truth is, they often miss the problem itself. One biblical scholar, D.A. Carson, he notes that the Bible insists that the heart of all human problems is rebellion against the God who is our maker, whose image we bear, and whose rule we seek to overthrow. All our problems, without exception, he says, can be traced to this fundamental source, our rebellion and the just curse of God that we have attracted by our rebellion. Therefore, that means that whether we are the perpetrators, we are the liars, the thieves, the lustful glances, right? Those who are hating and jealousy, or maybe we find ourselves as the victims of rape or bullying or some indiscriminate bombing. The truth is our plight is tied to sin, whether we are the offender or the offended. And so as we come to Genesis 3 today, what we find is, is that opposition to God and his rule lurks in the garden. And if you and I would be honest, it lurks in our hearts as well. We wrestle with the very things that Genesis 3 sets before us today, that inside of us, deep down, sometimes we are given into the deception that we believe God is actually withholding from us what is best and good, and maybe he can't be trusted, or maybe we have to find it on our other means. The danger is is that Satan is there whispering to all of us that lullaby that he whispers here in the garden. Sin isn't fatal, but we know it. We know it's a lie. Why? Because of experience and the truth of God's word. So therefore today, beloved, as you contemplate the very things in which you wrestle with, let us realize that there is a God who calls out to us to give us strength as we reach forth for that forbidden fruit. Reminding us of the truth of Genesis chapter 3. The truth about sin. That sin is indeed deceptive. Its wages disastrous. But God will not be defeated. Sin is indeed deceptive. Its wages are disastrous. But the good news is our God will not be defeated. As you come today to Genesis chapter 3, I want to be transparent with you. It is a long uphill climb until you hear some good news. And even that is very faint. And the tendency might be to rush past it as quick as we can. After all, it's Mother's Day. Let's hear some good news, bro. But the truth is, in doing that, we often miss the very holiness of God, the seriousness of our sin. And then in doing that, we minimize the greatness of Christ's sacrifice. So this morning, we want to intentionally let the text dictate our tone or the tempo of our pace. As we come and realize that Genesis 3 calls us all to do a little dance with a man in the mirror. To reflect upon ourselves, to see ourselves as we truly are, revealed through the light of God's Word. And so here we come to this first point, that sin is deceptive. Sin is deceptive. Genesis chapter 3 begins in verse 1 by simply saying this, Now the serpent was more crafty. Than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
Now, if you've been with us as we walk through the first two chapters of Genesis, right, everything up to this point has been perfect. It's been God sees it's good except for the man who's alone and he provides Eve. And when he sees them, we get, the, the, get this great refrain that it's very good. But now this moment happens, right, and we begin to wrestle with some things because this serpent shows up. Now, the truth is the serpent, right, is simply called crafty or more crafty than any other beast of the field. So the word crafty in the Hebrew can mean either good or bad. But the very fact that it's a serpent would be raise the eyebrows of the Hebrew people. Why? Because the serpent was an unclean thing for them. So they're immediately aware that there is danger lurking in the garden. Although it's never the snake here is never identified specifically as Satan. The rest of Scripture can clearly can declares who he is. Listen to passages like Revelation chapter 12 verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called what, church? The devil and Satan. Is it on there? Is it not keeping up? Sorry. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, I'll just read it, and maybe it'll come back in a minute. Um, it, it says the good news, right, of this truth. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Now, this, this may follow along, it may not. I want to be really transparent. The enemy has been at work. Literally on Thursday, as I was writing a portion of this, talking about who Satan was, I, for a moment I turned away, come back to my, my computer screen. It's complete black. I, I can't power it down. I can't, no matter how long I hold it down. And so after seven, eight minutes of trying everything, I walk into Brother Todd, and I'm like, Brother, listen, man, the enemy's at war. I literally cannot even power my computer down. It's, it's just, it won't do anything. And we prayed. And come back in, and finally, by the grace of God, the computer powers down and powers back on. So I, I'm expecting anything to unfold. It's been an intense night of spiritual warfare. I'm just being really transparent with you. There was minimal sleep last night. The, the enemy is at war because we are talking about his repertoire, his, his, his arsenal, so to speak. We are, we are doing a film study on who this enemy is. And be ready, be prepared. He will attack your mind and heart to get you distracted in any way he might this morning. But by God's grace, might we hear the word of God? Let's just pray and call out to him. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are weak, but you are strong. Help us. Amen. So again, Revelation 12, 9 clearly reveals that the devil, this serpent is the devil. He is, this, it's Satan, who he is. And so we see him here unfolding the garden. But it's clear, I want to make sure you're aware of this, that Satan isn't like God's equal evil counterpart. That's often this thought process that goes. That like there's this dualism happening. Like there's this good power or good being God. And there's this equal evil power, Satan. And they're at war. And we're not sure who's going to win. That's not at all how the scripture in fact reveals him from the very first moment of the pages of scripture where we find Satan revealed. Listen to what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. So again, representing Satan here. That the Lord God had what, church? Had made. Did you hear that? Satan is a created being. He is a fallen angel, but nonetheless, he is created. So you might need to think about it like this that it's like a dog on the leash, and God has the leash, and Satan only has a certain distance in which he may go to tempt you or to wreck your life, right? To bring against certain things against you. So here it is, even in the garden, we see the reminder that Satan is created, just like the serpent. He is on a leash. But his question is loaded with deception that we need to just wrestle with for a moment. I think what's interesting is, again, hear the refrain, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He doesn't completely contradict God, but when he, he says that statement there, did God actually say, 
what he's wrestling with is saying, is God's heart toward you actually good? Or do you feel like God's withholding from you? Maybe you're wrestling that some way this morning. If God was good, then this would have happened in my life. Or if God was a good, then maybe this wouldn't have happened in my life. Did God actually say? He's just creating some question, some doubt of God's goodness. But notice what else it does here. He says literally, did God. Now, now it's interesting. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 2, when we see about who this creator God is, he's continually called the Lord God. L-O-R-D, all caps. It is the name of Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. But this God of all power and all might, this covenant-keeping God who is a God of mercy and grace. Again, remember, Moses writes the words of Genesis many years later as the people are in the wilderness. And notice what he refers to him as. He just simply calls him God. Some sense belittling who God is or the relationship in which he is established through his covenant and relationships. And so he's wrestling here, causing the woman to doubt. And notice what else he says to him. Look at this. I think it's interesting. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's a twisting, isn't it? I mean, God says that they were free to eat from any tree except one. But Satan, what he does is he makes that one tree feel like every tree. Did you hear that? You shall not eat of any tree in the, in the garden? No, it's just one tree. But he twisted in our hearts and our minds to make us think, if I can't have that, then I feel like I can't have anything. It's this burning desire that he's beginning to mess and manipulate our hearts and our minds and tempt us. But the woman's response is vital as well. Look what you would, begin in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tr- fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So the woman responds back, right? Again, she, she omits some things, right? So look what she says. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But she doesn't acknowledge that we're free to eat from all the trees except one. And that tree, when she acknowledges it, look what she says. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. She just calls it this tree that's in the midst of the garden. She, she, she minimizes this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And notice what else she says. And I think it's in some way interesting. Verse 3. But God said. Again. She takes the lead of the serpent and just simply refers to him as God rather than Lord God, who he's been throughout the pages of chapter 2 in her created Adam there in the garden. And maybe you're wondering, like, well, Blake, why does all this matter? I think it matters because the temptation can be is that God seems like this distant rule keeper, this bah humbug, this scroogey guy that has all these lists of rules to obey. And, and he seems distant. He seems like this maybe harsh taskmaster, master, maybe this joy killer, instead of a loving father. It was A.W. Tozer who once said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important things about us. So I want to ask you, when you think about God, what comes into your mind? Harsh taskmaster? Joy killer, rule keeper, or do you hear him as Heavenly Father? You see, the answer to that question determines so much of our trajectory about our relationship with God and how we see him and how we relate to him. And so the, the serpent responds in verse 4 
Listen to his response. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, it's interesting, right? Depending upon your translation, how verse 4 begins with the serpent speaking. Look what it says again here in this translation. This is the English Standard Version. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. But in the original Hebrew, the word he responds is, so listen, the woman says, like, we can't eat of this tree because if we eat of it, we will die. And the serpent's response is, literally begins with, no, you will not die. That's not true. In other words, what Satan is saying to them, listen, I want you to know who the real deceiver and liar in the garden is. It's not me. It's not you. It's actually God. He's selling the bait that we've been buying ever since, beloved. But he begins, not so. That's not true. You won't surely die. And, and how does he know that they won't surely die? He says, for. Here's the reason why. Because he says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you will be like who? You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. And the question is, who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust God's holy word or that ancient serpent? The truth is, if you listen closely to that statement that you will be like God, I mean, our culture whispers that, but we hear maybe Satan, right? behind it all did god really say that there is a heaven and a hell did god really say that jesus christ and through repentance and faith in him is the only way to the father did god really say that marriage is between one man and one woman did god really say that he created you either male or female in his own image you see behind our culture is a serpent who is lying and deceiving from the very beginning and the temptation, again, is, is that we would wrestle with that you would be like God. That's, our, that's the ideology. That's the fruit from which everyone wants to eat. They want to be God. Why? Because then you get to decide what's right and what's wrong. If there's no God, then there's no ultimate rule and authority. There's no capital T truth. And you are free to be the master of your own domain. Satan is here tempting. And beloved, let's be honest, we still eat this fruit. As you consider your response to the fruit of your own temptation, listen to Eve's in verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This, is, this passage, verse 6, is one that gets repeated in different ways throughout the Bible. But I want to draw your attention just to one component of it. Look what it says. The tree was desired to make one wise. So inevitably to be like God, right? To be able to know good and evil. Since one of the early church fathers, Augustine, in about 300 AD, it's been understood that this desire, this desire to be wise was pride in the heart of the human. And now it's, it's becoming, right? Why? Because, listen, the temptation is we want to know what's right. We want to know what's right in our own eyes. And so because of that, we so often reject what God's word has to say. And we make up truth for ourselves. It's since the beginning. Listen again. See that and think, man, listen, the old adage, right? You can't teach an old dog what? New tricks. But he doesn't have to learn new tricks because they keep working. He's continuing to lie and deceive us. And so here we are wrestling with it. We might rightly ask, well, what about Adam? All we get is a simple synopsis on his life here in verse 6. It says that she takes fruit and eats it, and then she also gave some to her husband 
who was with her and he ate. We don't have a lot of commentary on what Adam is doing at this moment, even though it appears that he is present with her. And again, some of it, if you study the text, you're going to hear singular use and plural use in the original language that maybe gives some clarity to his presence being there. But I want to remind us, right, Paul just gives a little adage to this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. He says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Although we don't know all the details of what Adam is there, what we do know is, is that Adam is the representative. He represents humanity. And we see that unfold as Paul comes in chapter 5 of Romans, and he begins to share with us clearly about who this representative is, that Adam as the first man, represents the entirety of the human race. And so therefore, when he sins in the garden, when he disobeys God, he represents all of us. Therefore, all of us are born with a sin nature. We're sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And that may ruffle your feathers a little bit to think, well, man, I wasn't there. I didn't have, like, how come that gets put on me? But the good news, Paul says, is this. Just as there was a first Adam who brought sin and death into our lives, so there is a true and better Adam. A second Adam, that you can be represented by his life. And I'm certain of this, beloved. You want him representing you. You want his holy, perfect life. His never giving in to sin, not even once. Did you hear that in Hebrews 4 we read this morning earlier? Yet he was without sin. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That's who you want representing you. And the good news is you can be represented by him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that's what the Bible alone says. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. At nights, we've been reading through this book with our kiddos, right? Um, see if I can throw it up on the, the screen so you can see it. It's called Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. Um, it, it's based upon the book by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. And that's outside the Bible. It's the best-selling book, right, at all time, the Pilgrim's Progress. So this just makes it more in kid form. If I could recommend one book to families, to grandmas, to aunts, to mamas today, to families who... Maybe you're sometimes like me and haven't always gotten the gift ahead of time, and you're still thinking, what might I do? This is it. This is it. But listen, I share this why, because we've been reading through it with the kids, and one, I want you to be able to share it with your family and get it and read. But one of the things that stood out this last week, right, we found that Pilgrim, or the Christian who's this Pilgrim on a journey, representing all Christians, he comes to Difficulty Hill. And in the book, guess what? It's obvious to see that he's in Difficulty Hill. There's lions and there's uphill and all of that. But this past Thursday morning, the Jesse household, maybe a little bit like yours sometimes, there was some struggles, to say the least. And on the way to school that morning, I said, guys, you know what's really easy about reading a book? Is that we could see that Christian was on difficulty hill. But in your life, sin hits you from the blind side. Temptation comes at you, like it hits you on the windshield, and often it can only be understood through the, through the rearview mirror. And I just said, listen, guys, those moments come to us. Temptation, we don't often see it, but it's what someone says or what someone does. Or let's be honest, sometimes it's what they don't say or what they don't do that we expect. And there we are living this moment of life. And the reminder is, as we look at Christian's life here in Pilgrim's Progress, we must constantly be on guard. That's what's happening in the garden. We must stay ready, brothers and sisters, knowing that our enemy roams around like a roaring what? lion seeking whom he may devour we must stay ready and again i want to encourage you little pilgrims big journey it's a great book for you and your family to read so satan comes right it's deceptive why because sin is deceptive our hearts are deceptive but secondly we see this truth sin's wages are disastrous 
This gets the bulk of chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. It's kind of the weight of really what happens as a result of this sin. It's like, what are the consequences of sin? Well, the wages or the payment of sin, as we know in the scriptures, is death. But it's disastrous, beloved, on so many fronts. It was Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of Franklin D. FDR, right? Franklin Eleanor Roosevelt, one of our American presidents, who once said, Learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. Learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. So what I would say and I would encourage all of us this morning is to pull up a chair, so to speak, and just say, what is the wages of sin? What is the true consequences of sin as the Scripture reveals it? That we might be warned and learn to hate our sin. So pick up the wood. As we come to the end of verse 7 here in Genesis chapter 3, that sin's disastrous wage is separation. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And so we're going to unfold that further in a few moments as this this text happens. But notice, Adam and Eve, they do obtain knowledge, right? That's what Satan says. Like, listen, if you eat, your eyes will be open. And that's what the text says. Their eyes are open. They, They begin to recognize and see that they are, in fact, right, they are both naked. That's what they recognize immediately, like, whoa, something's up here. So they sew fig leaves together, and they, they make this covering for themselves. But the truth is, as we see it starting to unfold in the text, that sin actually does something great that they weren't prepared for. It separates them from the Father. But that's the good news, beloved, this moment of grace and mercy in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Listen, as you are struggling in your battle with sin this morning, hear the word of God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's the heart of a loving father. That he continues to pursue us in our sin. Amen. What hope, what, what kindness, what meekness. Now notice what he does here again. They, they hid themselves. And so the Lord God, look what it does. He calls to the man again, who is the representative of the human race. And he says to him simply, where are you? Now, again, God's kind of like we do with our kids sometimes, right? When we play hide-and-seek and they're in the corner under the blanket like, I can't see you, right? I mean, God's not struggling. They're like, I wonder where they really are. Can I see anybody seen them? Holy Spirit, you go that way. Jesus, you're that way. We will find them, right? No, he knows right where they are. But it's this moment of meekness and humility, this loving, gentle heart of the Father. Where are you? Would you hear that to you today? That there's a God who sees you and knows your sin full well, and yet he is coming and pursuing you and calling out to you today, where are you? He calls again to the man, and, and soon the man comes forth in verse 10, and he says, listen, God, I heard you, the sound of you, and I was afraid. I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked and I hid myself. And God says, well, why were you afraid? And why did you realize you were naked? Have you disobeyed my command? It's just a reminder that, that sin brings shame. And it, this awareness comes as we realize that we're breaking the very law of God, the commandments of God. 
This is what biblical guilt is. Guilt that comes from a conscience that knows it's violated God's word. And according to Romans chapter 1, although we can suppress that truth, although all of humanity can suppress that truth, the truth is from God's word in Romans chapter 1 is that everyone deep down knows that they are rebelling and repressing the truth of God. Is that you this morning? Will you continue in your rebellion and repression of the truth? Or will you acknowledge today that you and I are sinners? Will you see your nakedness and your shame? Will you see that you have no way to hide yourself from a holy God? So sin's disastrous wage, first is separation. Secondly, sin's disastrous wage is the curse. Listen to it begin to unfold. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. I can hear old Adrian Rogers preaching this text. He says, the man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the man, the woman blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. I can still hear him saying that, old Adrian, his Adrianisms, man. But anyway, so again, nonetheless, back to the text, but man, thankful, thankful so much for brothers and sisters that God has used in my life. Aren't you? That even though they're long dead in the presence of God, that God still uses them in our lives. Isn't that encouraging to all of us to realize how finite and little we are, that we are soon passing off the scene? And although the world may forget us, God never will. Man, it's beautiful. So again, the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. Listen to this. So this is, again, the curse begins to unfold. All right. So the curse is this justified divine judgment. It's might what we understand as a decree of doom, as it's been said. The curse is upon the serpent who, again, represents who? Satan. Yes, Satan. So he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Now, that's interesting, right? He says that they are he's cursed above all livestock. Now, if you remember, he's, so he's the most cursed, but earlier he was the most crafty. He went from the most crafty to the most cursed. It's, it's again, interesting play that's happening here, unfolding before our eyes. He says, Cursed are you above all livestock and all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. It's just a picture of humiliation. And then he says, verse 15, I will put enmity. There's going to be war between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. There's going to be this ongoing spiritual war that's unfolding. Indeed, physical even, as we see unfolding throughout the pages of Scripture. So again, the curse is unfolding, yes, upon the serpent who represents Satan, and we get some fuller picture as we come to the end a minute on this verse 15 we want to come back to. But secondly, we, we see this curse that now promises pain and childbearing and disorder in our marriages and our homes. Listen to this. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. I don't know if that was on many of you Mother's Day's cards today, but there it is. And so the reminder is, right, that for every child that's been brought into the world, for every mother who's gone through that, it's a reminder the curse still stands. Isn't it beautiful hearing all those little voices? We ought to be thankful, beloved. You and I are flowers quickly fading. We are here today and gone tomorrow. We ought to thank God that we have them in the church. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And even their coming, their being here is a reminder that the curse will not last forever. There is one that's coming from the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Man, I want to get to it. We've got, it's a long hill. 
We've got we to bide our time, right? It's kind of like the cow days race, man. I see those brothers and sisters shoot out with that gun. I was early on the first years, I was that too. I was hero, man, up front running with those brothers. Like, what are y'all doing? Man, the time we get like right here by the church or the bank, I'm like, oxygen. Oh, so anyway, listen, but man, we gotta, we got we got so we got to keep our pace, right? Control, control. Here we go. All right. So the woman said to the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain and childbearing. So again, this is part of the curse being unveiled. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And then this, listen to this. You wonder like, well, why is my marriage, why is there such tension in my home? It's the curse. It's sin. Your desire, listen to this. The woman's desire is going to be contrary to her husband, but he is going to rule over them. It's going to bring tension constantly in the marriage relationship. There's going to be constant fighting and, and challenging of who's in charge and who does this and who's got the best intention and what do you, why didn't you say that or why didn't you do that or why did you say or why did you do that? Like, all of that reckoning, all that wrestling that happens in your lives, it's the result of sin and God's judgment. It's the curse, beloved. It ought to compel us to run to our Savior. Today, if you're struggling in your marriage, I want to usher you that there is one who can bear your burdens, who can strengthen you to love your neighbor as yourself. And his name is Jesus. So again, this is unfolding here, these struggles. Notice, look at the third, the curse is upon our work. Listen to this, beginning in verse 17. Now he speaks to the man. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. That is, again, not going to be on a Mother's Day card. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Right, again, you might think, I I, I just need to make a statement on that. People are like, what does that got to do? The reminder is if we put anyone, even our own wives, even flesh of our own flesh, above Almighty God and His Word, beloved, we have an idol and we have a sin problem. There is only one to be in the captain's seat. There's only one to be king. His name is Jesus. And He warns the man, listen, you've listened to the voice of your wife. You've listened. You should have held fast. I gave you dominion. This was the garden. You were to rule. Adam, where were you? Where are you? Where were you? Men today, where are you? Are you leading your home? Are you loving your wives? Are you caring for your children? Are you working hard to provide for your families? Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Now listen to this again. We hear this further. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Notice what he says. The result is, because of this, that our work is now painful. You ever found yourself exhausted from work? Ever found, like, you're trying to work on something that keeps breaking or it won't work right? You ever get in that moment like, boys, this just ain't worth it. Like, we just need to figure out something else. This isn't ever going to get right. Guess what you're experiencing, the curse? And you see, what's flipping the script is, is that men and women were created in the image of God to be fruitful and multiply. But the curse is now coming against that. Adam and Eve are in the garden to have dominion over the livestock and the ground. But now, because of sin, the curse is coming against that. You see, as you, you wrestle and you have hard days when you plant but harvest little, you hope for rain and it doesn't come, or you get too much rain, or you experience not the right temperature, or the equipment doesn't work, or the animal doesn't get this or that, you're experiencing the curse. When you walk into a house that you thought just a few moments ago was clean and now all your rugrats run through it and you're like, what happened? 
right? Or that mound of laundry keeps piling up after you just spent all day working on laundry. Beloved, it is thorns and thistles. It's thorns and thistles. And the reason why is, is because you and I are sinners and we are under the curse. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we will stop fighting against people we love and realize there's a real enemy who's waging war on our souls and theirs in our very homes and lives. It's as I've been reminded by faithful brothers in this very room, while when equipment breaks on the farm, they stop and they pray. Because they realize that some things, again, are unfolding as a result of the curse and they are calling out to a God who can fix it. Let's not become so spiritual that we forget to stop and pray at our farms or in our homes. Let's hold fast and believe that our God is indeed able and he is the curse conqueror. Thorns and thistles, nonetheless. These disastrous wages, I would love to tell you they're finished, but verse 19 deals what we might call the death blow, the ultimate TKO that comes. Look what it says. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. And then you probably heard this probably at some funerals. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's the payment for sin. As Paul says, for the wages of sin is what? It's death. You see, I think we're starting to get a big picture of Satan's words. They're both true and false. He's true in the fact that they don't immediately die and that their eyes are open, but he doesn't reveal, just as sin never reveals, all the truth. You see, grace reveals, but sin conceals. And that's what happens here in this garden. He said that death wouldn't come, but the truth is death is coming. It is a promise of God. It's a part of the curse, a result of payment, the fair payment for our sin. Even though God is mercifully not enacting that judgment immediately, but still what we may not see here in this moment and what Adam and Eve surely didn't understand is the result of spiritual death that was coming. That you and I now are inherited this sin nature. That in other words, every part of us is impacted by the fall and we are incapable of rescuing ourselves. And all this leaves us crying out, is there anyone who can help? Is there someone who might rescue us? And the Bible's answer is, though sin is deceptive, its wages are disastrous, God will not be defeated. God will not be defeated. You see, I think that's why we come to, as we hear verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This is why moms hope and long and bring their families weekly and throughout the week to hear the gospel. This is why they share the word of God in their homes. This is why you are talking to your children as you drive down the road. This is why you are signing up to come and help on a Wednesday night or go to Oklahoma and be a part of these things. Why? Because you realize it's the word of God by the spirit of God for the glory of God that will change a boy or a girl. This is the hope for mothers. That sin is indeed deceptive. It is disastrous. But our God will not be defeated by it. So how does God defeat sin? Well, He defeats it through judgment. Listen to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You see, death did come immediately. Although it was not to Adam and Eve, someone else had to die in their place. So we have these garments of skin. Again, prefiguring the one who will ultimately come and give his life on that old rugged cross. That our sin and our shame might be covered once and for all. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Again, hearing the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Their sin has disastrous consequences. But yet in the midst of this, there's so much mercy and grace that God again is clothing them, that their sin doesn't bring immediate death. It's a reminder, though, that there's judgment. Why? Because this place, this garden, isn't just simply a place, but represents the relationship with God, our abiding with Him. And we are now being driven out from that place. And the question throughout Scripture is, how do we come back? How do we get restored to God? The Word of God tells us, look here in verse 15. We read it earlier. I will put enmity, I will put it war between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Listen to this statement. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it's interesting, right? We don't have much time, but if, if you wrestle with this, he's speaking to the woman here and he says, between your offspring or, or to the enemy, I will put war, I'll put you at war between the, you and the woman and between your offspring. And notice this, and her offspring, I, I think the King James may still hold it, your seed. Right. So, again, I recognize the context, but we realize that there's just some biological factors that a woman doesn't bring the seed. And so there's something hinting here that something's going to happen. And we recognize that as we come clear to the New Testament, that this is speaking of the virgin birth. It's been what's called the proto evangelium. It's the first hint of the gospel. This declaration that there's going to come someone from the seed of the woman who's going to bruise. Yes, you're going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. It's looking forward to the cross when Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, the true and better Adam, hallelujah, the seed of the woman, the one who will come. That's why Matthew's laboring so hard. You say, Matthew, get on the story. Why all this genealogy? Because he wants you to know that what God had promised in the garden, God is going to fulfill. That Jesus comes from the descendant of Adam. And he's, what he promised here, he is bringing to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this hope of the gospel. That one day from the woman's seed will come the one who's going to crush the serpent. Why? Not, yes, that, that death blow will be given there on the cross. But on the third day, by the power of God, the resurrection will come. As we were singing earlier forever, I just put my arm around mom. And today would have been my dad's birthday. And I said, Mom, we're going to see him again. Death is not final. The curse will not last forever, beloved. Because the Son of God gave his life. And my daddy repented and believed on him. By grace alone shall he and I be reunited one day on that golden shore. It's this hope of the gospel. You see, it's not just pages, beloved. I'm saying this is life and breath. This is everything for which you long. It is available to you through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Oh, beloved, I pray you know him. Indeed, he becomes a man just like Adam. And he does what Adam could never do for us and rescues us. You may be wondering, well, how far reaching is this rescue that he's going to bring with crushing the serpent? Well, we sing it at Christmas time. Hear the third verse of joy to the world. Listen to it in the, as it's just shaped in the words of Genesis 3. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessing flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. How far will God's grace and mercy reach? As far as the curse is found. No one here is too far gone. Do you hear me this morning? 
You see, some of you mothers and grandmothers have labored in long prayer for your souls. And by God's grace today, you're here hearing this only gospel. I want you to know that as far as the curse is found, no matter how deep you find yourself in sin, there is a Savior who gave His very life for you, who paid the penalty that you deserve to pay to a holy and awesome God, and He died in your place that you might be forgiven and reconciled. As far as the curse is found, our Savior comes. Indeed, joy to the world. Wow. So to the unbeliever, as you ask the question, How will my sin be defeated? How will I, sinner, dwell with a holy God? The Bible has one and only answer. The seed of the woman who is the Lord Jesus Christ who takes on flesh and faces it all for us. In Christ, what do we have? We have a Satan slain, curse conquering, sin slaughtering, death defeating, righteous reigning, true and better son of Adam. Man, we have the hope of the gospel. To the believers in this room, this passage calls us to not only rest in Christ alone, but as the Englishman John Owen said in the 1600s, this pastor and theologian, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. To that end, Owen compels us. I just want to share a few of these as we leave. Number one, address sin's first signs. Just like it's hard to stop a leak once it gets started, so it is with sin. We don't let it. We let it grow. Some of you, again, you're finding yourself cursing more, talking about things that you would be ashamed to mention in this place. Others of you find yourself not loving or desiring the Word of God, or even to gather amongst His people. Don't excuse it. Confess it to God. Be ready at the first sign. Oh God, my sinful heart, change me, Lord. Please forgive me. James says that we are to confess our sins one to another. One of the things I've found that's best for helping about addressing the first signs of sin is accountability. Again, we invite you on Sunday nights to come. Be a part of that where you share and ask other brothers and sisters to pray and help hold you accountable. Secondly, avoid occasions that incite sin. Could I ask this morning, what are you watching that's leading you into sin? What are you watching? That's leading you into sin. Maybe what are you listening to? As I used to tell when we were in student ministry here, garbage in, garbage out. I can still remember songs from high school filled with profanity and all kinds of things that would... Man, I can still hear those lyrics. It affects your heart, beloved. What are you listening to? Be warned of occasions that incite sin. Third, meditate on God's glory. That's what John Owen says. He says it's hard for sin to flourish in a heart that is filled with all what God has done for us in Christ. I want to ask you, do you have a regular time alone with the Lord where you read and pray? That you meditate on God's glory? You see, this is a reminder why mothers and things are so valuable. I heard just recently, literally last night, I was reading a book about one of the great scholars and theologians of our time. And he was on a panel with all these other great scholars and theologians. They asked him this question, said, how, what, what for you leads you to a place that you hold, that you believe this Bible is inerrant, it's without error? And this great scholar and theologian said this, because my mama told me so. 
Now listen, he goes on, he has all kinds of other great arguments. I, I get that. But it's a reminder to us, beloved, of the importance of godly mothers, of godly women in this church who will train up other children who don't have a mama telling them so. Are you with me? That's why we go to Oklahoma. That's why we labor on Wednesday nights. That's why we minister in this community. That's why we go to the nations. That they would hear and believe this blessed and only gospel. The serpent is real. His sting and the deception. But there is coming a day, beloved, that I want to leave you with this as we close. It's the words of Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them. Think about every time he's deceived you. Was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And all I can say is hallelujah. Hallelujah. There will come a day when there will be no more curse, no more sin, no more deceiver. He will be once and for all destroyed by the powerless victory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I compel you today to come to Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Jesus. In his victory, I preach and proclaim and hope. Thank you, God, for your victory. May it resonate in the hearts and minds of every soul in this room that we would leave not in our own strength, but in the victory of our Savior who has overcome the grave and our sin and the wages of death. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.